hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining our faculty-focused webinar hosted by the UVA Law School Foundation. Um, my name is Keegan Sweeney. I'm a 2 at the law school. I'm originally from California, but happy to call Charlottesville my home now, uh, given just how wonderful a place UVA is. Uh, and I recognize that's in no small part because of our alumni, like all of you guys, uh, as well as a lot of the good work that the Law School Foundation does as well. Um, so I'm especially excited for the opportunity to introduce Professor Ashley Dietz to all of you today. Um, because I'm fortunate enough to be enrolled in international security law class currently. Um, the class has been absolutely fascinating and covers a lot of issues that are only growing in importance, uh, kind of ranging from what's going on in Ukraine right now to the legality of domestic surveillance programs. Um, so as her student, I get to testify that Professor Deeks's teaching ability is really uh, as impressive as her scholarship is um, and her service to the country. So Professor Deech, or Deeks joined the law school in 2012 as an associate professor of law after two years as an academic fellow at Columbia Law School. She recently took a 17-month hiatus to serve as White House associate counsel and deputy legal advisor for President Joe Biden's National Security Council. Uh, her primary research and teaching interests are in the areas of international law, national security, intelligence, and the laws of war. Uh, but before joining the academy, she spent 10 years working in various capacities at the U.S. State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor, including as Assistant Legal Advisor for Political and Military Affairs, working on issues related to the law of armed conflict, the use of force, conventional weapons, and the legal framework for the conflict with Al-Qaeda. She's also written articles on the use of force, executive power, secret treaties, the intersection of national security and international law, and the laws of armed conflict. She's a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Law and the American Law Institute, and she serves as a contributing editor to the Lawfare blog. Uh, Professor Deeks also serves on the board of editors of the American Journal of International Law, the Journal of National Security Law and Policy, and the Texas National Security Review. Uh, and finally, and certainly not least, uh, she is also a senior fellow at the Lieber Institute for Law and Land Warfare, as well as a faculty senior fellow at the Miller Center. Um, so we're actually going to start with Professor Deeks giving some remarks, and then she's been kind enough to take questions at the end of her presentation. Um, at any time during that presentation, if you have any questions, please just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, and we'll get to as many of your questions as, can, as we can. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Professor Deeks. Great. Keegan, uh, thank you so much for being willing to take time away from your studying to moderate this. Uh, I know you have a number of exams coming up. And thanks also to the Foundation's Alumni Relations Office for uh, pulling this together. So I'm delighted to be able to, to talk to you today. And I'm looking forward to hearing your reactions and questions um, after I've made some comments. So I thought I would start by talking about a project that I'm currently wa uh, working on that's about the role of artificial intelligence, or what's commonly called AI, in US national security. So I want to say a little bit about how I came to the project and what I hope to do with it. Uh, it is still a work in, in uh, progress, so um, the end remains to be seen. But um, I thought I would start with that. And then at the end, I wanted to make a few broader points about the way in which technological tools are changing the face of US national security um, and also changing the, the players who are operating within that sphere. So I'll start out by talking about my, my book project. I'm currently working on a project that I think is going to be called something like the double black box, national security, AI, and the struggle for democratic accountability. 
Um, and I, I came to this because I'd been researching and writing in two different areas. And, uh, and I think this project really kind of brings those areas together. So the first thread of um, work that I'd been developing had to do with the role of AI in national security. So I suspect that many of you um, have heard of AI and machine learning. I'll say just a little bit about what it is for those of you who may not be as familiar with it. So machine learning algorithms generate predictions by allowing the data itself rather than human programmers to dictate how the information in the inputs is assembled to forecast the value of an output. So um, computer scientists who are using uh, a lot of data, we obviously have a lot more data today than we uh, ever have before, and also using powerful computers, they're developing algorithms that can help make predictions about things. And they can make those predictions faster and sometimes more accurately than humans can. So you may have uh, been, you may be familiar with algorithms that can recognize and classify things such as cat photos on the internet, or more seriously, things like lung cancer, where the algorithms reward or punish, uh, uh, the, the, the developers of the algorithms reward or punish the algorithms based on their error rates. And over time, the algorithms learn how to uh, correct and improve their predictive abilities. So we see this in Netflix recommendations about what movies you might wanna watch next. Um, we've seen it in uh, the game of Go where computer scientists have developed an algorithmic uh, ga game player that can actually beat the most sophisticated uh, human players of the game. So I, to give you a very specific example that I think is, is um, powerful, there are now algorithms that um, can detect lung cancer in x-rays. So the programmers showed the, um, the algorithm a thousand slides, 500 with cancer, 500 without, and they tell the system which is which. The algorithm then extracts the relevant features of the cancer slides even if a human can't really identify what exactly it is that the algorithms are focused on, a computer scientist will then come in and test the machine learning algorithm using 200 new slides that the system has never seen before and see how well the algorithm can identify those with cancer and those without. And they're now at a point where these algorithms are doing better than human doctors, uh, even though we don't always know how the algorithm is reaching its conclusion or prediction. So this is the black box that people sometimes refer to when they're talking about machine learning algorithms and deep neural nets. These systems have already started to appear in government decision-making outside the national security sphere. So uh, for example, the Social Security Administration is reportedly using machine, uh, machine learning to adjudicate disability benefits cases. And the SEC is reportedly using machine learning to try to target enforcement efforts under the federal securities laws. So what I'm interested in is how the government is gonna to start to use these systems in the national security space. So how is the military gonna use these systems and how are our intelligence agencies gonna use them? I think it's quite clear that states like the United States and China and maybe to a lesser extent, Russia and Iran and Israel, very committed to developing artificial intelligence for military uses. 
Um, the, the People's Republic of China has said that it sees AI as a race that it needs to win. And we can imagine why that's the case. So if we're talking about systems that can make more accurate predictions or recommendations, if we're talking about systems that can spot patterns in data that humans can't, uh, that can churn through huge quantities of data really quickly, if we're talking about uh, the ability to react with speed that can be useful, for example, in uh, the cockpit of a fighter jet, um, uh, if you're talking about systems that can help avoid human cognitive biases, uh, or making sure that your decisions take into account all of the relevant information and not take into account irrelevant information. Um, those are all really useful things that, uh, that machine learning, that AI can do. And so I think it's um, easy to imagine how some of those, those advantages would really enhance war fighting and intelligence collection, counter espionage and things like that. There's been a lot of ink spilled about one particular type of artificial intelligence, and that is um, often referred to as lethal autonomous weapon systems, which uh, some now shorthand as laws. Uh, so us as lawyers, we might not love that acronym, but um, I will refer to them as, as lethal autonomous weapon systems here. These are machine learning systems that have been trained to identify particular types of targets and then be launched by states onto the battlefield. The idea is that the systems would be able to detect targets, either people or uh, maybe military objects, tanks, uh, and so on, and then initiate force against them without additional uh, direction from the military commanders or operators. And so you can see why why that would get a lot of attention, and indeed it has. It's been the subject of uh, a lot of discussion in um, some international uh, groups, um, meetings in, in places like Geneva. But I'm also interested in kind of pushing beyond that one case. I'm interested in other situations in which militaries and intelligence communities might start to use AI in their systems. And uh, since AI tools are, as I've said, good at making predictions and good at detecting anomalies, militaries and intelligence agencies can use these tools, I think, to help determine who's most dangerous, which actors are connected to, to whom, when and where should a military go on patrol, um, and so on. With, with a couple of other colleagues, I've also written a, a piece trying to think through how states might use these tools to even predict incoming attacks before an armed conflict starts. So when might other states or non-state actors be in a position to attack? Where might that attack come from? What kinds of responses would be proportionate? Um, I also uh, am worried that states are going to start to use deep fakes, which are systems driven by AI to try to deceive their adversaries, to try to trick them into using violence um, as a result of seeing a deep fake, for example, of a, a foreign leader ostensibly scheming about a, a future attack. Um, I also think there's room in cyber for, uh, for AI and cyber autonomy. I think this in fact might be the first area where we'll actually see true autonomy in the national security space. Um, people have written about the ability of autonomous cyber tools to hunt out vulnerabilities in, these, in the adversaries' systems. 
And of course, if we're talking about speed, cyber is a place where you really need to act with uh, great haste in responding to incoming attacks. But of course, those are all maybe some of the positive cases for use of AI and some of the places where uh, our system might see that as useful, but there are problems with AI as well. Um, there have been a lot of criticisms about how um, companies or governments have developed AI uh, that produce biased, uh, biased predictions because the, the data that they, the systems have been trained on reflects an earlier bias. Um, some other people talk about automation bias by the users. That is this idea that you might reflexively agree with and go along with a recommendation of a computer system, even if it's in tension with what you as a person have experienced in the past uh, or think the right decision is um, based on your own experiences. And then finally, and I think most importantly for my project, there's a concern about the lack of transparency about how these systems are producing their, their outputs, their recommendations. Um, it is often opaque both to the users of these systems and to the, obviously to the subjects or targets of the systems, how exactly a particular algorithm reached its decision. So that's thread one of my, uh, my thinking about national security and AI. The second thread of my scholarship is interested in something slightly different, which is um, the challenge of government secrecy in a democracy, especially where that secrecy is manifested in national security policies and actions. So as many of you I'm sure know, a lot of what the US government does in the national security space is classified and often classified for good reason. But with secrecy come certain pathologies. You don't have to test out your ideas or your policies as publicly as you do when they are going to be uh, uh, open and out there ex ante. You can use secrecy to conceal legal violations uh, or embarrassing mistakes that you've made. So when we're thinking about government secrecy and we're evaluating it, I think what we're really worried about is trying to make sure that the government is complying with what, what we might call public law values. So these are things like legality and efficiency and accountability for mistakes and competence and fairness. And so how do we check the executive branch today on those? How do we figure out whether it's complying with public law values? Well, we rely heavily on parts of Congress and parts of the courts for that. We rely on certain congressional committees like the um, intelligence committees or the armed services committees uh, to look behind the, the secret curtain that the executive has. And in terms of courts, we have a body called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, which uh, evaluates government applications for electronic surveillance, which are obviously sensitive. And the FISC uh, uh, serves as our surrogate there to check to make sure that the um, executive is complying with those public law values. I'm also though interested in how those primary checks, that is the courts and Congress are insufficient. Um, it is often hard for Congress to oversee and regulate a wide range of intelligence and military actions. Sometimes this is because of their lack of capacity or their lack of interest. Sometimes it's because the executive um, may withhold certain information from Congress. And the courts um, tend to be quite deferential to the executive. 
So these are important checks, but they're not always hugely robust checks. So I think this means we, also, we, we end up relying on other less obvious actors that interact with the executive and that can actually also check it behind this veil of secrecy. So for example, um, corporations, I think, are serving as uh, checks today, especially in the cyber setting. These corporations are basically gathering what we would call intelligence if it were a government agency that was collecting the information. They share that information with the government. The government shares information with them. They can check whether they agree with the analysis that the government is providing them. So think Microsoft and Google, these really sophisticated companies. We also have actors like our allies, especially NATO allies, um, allies from, from Europe, who impose constraints on us in the military and intelligence space when, for example, we are engaged in classified joint operations. They actually sometimes impose an additional layer of laws on top of the laws that our own um, officials have to comply with. And they can call us out if our officials are doing something that seems improper. And I found a number of cases historically where that's happened. Um, maybe counterintuitively, I think executive branch lawyers themselves uh, can serve as a kind of non-traditional check on what's happening uh, in secret. And interagency negotiations among lawyers really serve as their own kind of check that helps the executive sharpen its legal arguments and make sure that it's complying with the law. And interestingly, I think states and localities are also starting to serve as, uh, if not active checks, at least players in this space. So as we all know, states have a huge role to play in elections and they have a big role to play in cyber um, because they're often the ones that are controlling these more regional electrical uh, power grids or water systems and so on. Um, they can share intelligence with the federal government. The federal government can share intelligence and operational plans with them. Um, and then finally, I, I should just mention leakers, which are, of course, not a kind of constitutional actor who checks, but have long been in the system as a way to check the executive branch. So even with these additional kind of non-traditional checks, it is a highly imperfect system. And yet, as I was stepping back, I realized that there's a really, I think, an important overlap between these two areas of scholarship that I had been thinking about and writing in. So if you were already worried about governments doing things in secret that are hard for you as a citizen to know about and to evaluate, what happens when those national security decision makers start using new sets of tools that you and they may not be able to interpret or understand very well? So I think that this is potentially gonna double down on this public law values problem. So the goal of my project is to really explore how bringing machine learning, other types of AI into the national security ecosystem are going to exacerbate or double the existing black box problems. So machine learning may exacerbate the citizen's inability to know what the government's doing in our name. It may exacerbate the ability of our usual proxies to know and understand what the executive is doing. That is, Congress and the courts may have a harder time. And it might even make it harder for the executive branch itself, the actors within the executive to explain why they made certain decisions. And I think it could potentially undercut some of the strengths of these alternative checks that I mentioned. 
the the pull, the, the, the I think helpful interagency disputes that you sometimes hear about really produce, I think, a useful push-pull that tries to get the executive to the right policy place. And if you have some agencies that are much more sophisticated in things like AI and ML than others, that push-pull is going to break down a little bit. Think about leaks, too. Leaking an algorithm is so different from leaking a memo that anybody who can open the, the, the New York Times uh, could read. And from the legal perspective, people in these general counsel's offices may have a harder time understanding the tech or be able to get involved in the front end development of these systems where it would be really useful to make sure that legal issues and legal parameters are taken into account as you are building these tools. And yet, right, and yet we are still gonna come under pressure to adopt these tools. I think especially because Russia and China are very committed to them. So how do we strike this balance? How do we ensure that the executive continues to pursue the public law values that we want it to um, without leaving the US behind? So that's really the thrust of the book. And the project really mostly focuses on the double black box in the United States. But I think the challenge that I'm hoping to describe is one that's probably gonna hold true for a range of democratic states uh, and uh, NATO allies. And I think our allies can be useful here in helping us think through the costs and benefits of using certain types of national security AI and joining with us to condemn other states if we see them using these tools in unacceptable ways. I think it's unlikely that we're gonna see a new treaty emerge that purports to regulate um, national security AI. So I think it's really gonna be important to get our own checks and balances and our own values clear in our mind on the domestic side. And finally, I just think it's important that lawyers, including those who are working in the national security space, understand or at least are willing to try to learn the basics of tech related to machine learning, related to cyber, and also maybe tools like encryption. So I wanna just quickly shift um, in the last couple of minutes, say something about what I think we're starting to see as a broader shift within national security law. So AI, I think, is just one example of how novel tech tools present both challenges and opportunities for governments that are concerned about their national security. So as Keegan knows, because he has been in my class this semester, AI is not the only area in which tech tools that we use to connect with others, cyber, telephony, apps, are really changing the face of national security. So we do current events uh, in my national security law class at the beginning of class. And in almost every class this semester, there was a news event related to tech threats to the US government or to US citizens. Studying national security used to mean really focused on what are the domestic laws related to going to war? What is the international law related to war? What about espionage? How does covert action work? Those were kind of the core national security issues. But many, many of the national security developments in the US in the past few years have really been focused on tech threats, in particular threats from China. So uh, this includes China's use of both its own legal system and technologies inside China, right, to build new AI tools, to demand access to data from US companies that are doing business inside China. 
think Google. Uh, we're also seeing the sale of Chinese, Chinese sourced technology inside the United States. Huawei uh, inside state and local 5G networks. Uh, drones produced by DJI, a Chinese company, being used by hobbyists and being flown in places that worry us a little bit, including over the national capital region. Uh, we're starting to see reports about self-driving cars manufactured in China uh, being sold here and a concern about the kinds of data they might be collecting and sending back um, into China. We also have issues related to the acquisition of US sourced components by Chinese companies, meaning things that US companies are making here that uh, could be exported to China. So we've seen past administrations basically say no more sales to Huawei or ZTE, limits on selling semiconductors to China, semiconductor chips. We're also, we've been thinking about acquisition by Chinese companies of assets inside the United States, right? The, the CFIUS process, CFIUS is actively reviewing TikTok. Um, and news reports suggest that even though it seemed like maybe there was gonna be an agreement, there are still national security concerns that the US feels haven't been addressed. And then of course, we have the steady diet of cyber operations and espionage. So these are all thought to pose serious national security threats. So how do we think about these threats? The US has a huge surface area for other countries to target. We have tons of high, you know, high tech US companies here. Some of them have offices overseas. We have a large defense industrial base. We have many US citizens who spend huge amounts of time on their devices producing data. And the target surface for foreign adversaries, I think is only gonna grow, right? As we continue to adopt the internet of things uh, in our houses, houses and elsewhere. I think there's a really interesting, significant role for new actors to help the federal government detect and address the threats. I've already mentioned companies as a possible check. I've mentioned um, uh, not just a check, but I guess also a, uh, an ally to sort of help us push forward to protect our security. Um, and states and localities, we're seeing that Maryland just banned the use of TikTok in its own Maryland government systems and banned Huawei in those systems as well. Um, we're seeing different parts of the executive branch than we're used to uh, helping uh, uh, advance our national security, right? So we usually think about DOD, the intelligence community. We're now really talking more about commerce, the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, the State Department for export controls, for sanctions, for CFIUS. Many of these systems have dual uses, right? So we're not just gonna ban the systems. We can't just make them um, unusable because uh, civilians get a huge amount of benefits out of a lot of this technology. And because of our interconnectedness technologically with our allies, we need them to be on the same page as we are. So otherwise our adversaries are just gonna penetrate our systems this, by going through our adversary systems. So there are lots of existing legal tools out there for the executive to use, uh, statutes like IEPA, the Export Control Act, CFIUS and FIRMA. Um, but I think it's useful to really think about whether the overall legal framework we have is sufficient, is it appropriate, are there things we could be doing better? So I think it's a fascinating time to be a national security lawyer and a scholar and the stakes feel pretty high to me. So I'm, I'm happy to be doing this. 
I'm going to hand it off now to Keegan, who will um, help collect and um, uh, and and ask your questions. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Keegan. Yeah. So Professor Deeks, thanks so much for, for that presentation. Obviously fascinating stuff and can't wait to hear more about what you find um, after you're further along in the research project. Um, but just as a reminder to all of you, um, you can submit questions if you just look at the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we've got a bunch already, but we'd love to take more um, and hear what you guys are curious about. Um, but let's start with a question from John White, Professor. Um, and John asks, the People's Republic of China has put very few limits on their development of artificial intelligence, as well as um, big data management systems. And so the question is, would implementing an extremely conservative approach within the US uh, on the development of artificial intelligence put us at a strategic disadvantage in the near future? I mean, kind of the flip side of that question, if, if I can just add something, uh, would be, does pressure from competition with China make us pay less attention to those public law values that you described um, earlier? Yeah, so that's a great question and it really kind of goes to the heart of my project. So, um, I think, in short, the answer is yes. Uh, concerns about exactly the kinds of tools that uh, the PRC is going to be able to develop are are certainly relevant to the kinds of tools that we're going to face pressure to um, to deploy. And um, and so, whenever you're in a kind of competitive posture, uh, you know it's more likely that your values will. Um, be tested. But I think where I've landed on this, and again, the last parts of the book have not been written, but I think my take is really going to be that we need to, to decide on our own, kind of apart from what any other adversary is doing, um, where our own values and limits leave us. And that should really be our, our guide star. And so to some extent, the US government has already started to do this, the Defense Department and the um, intelligence community have put out principles um, related to ethical use of, of AI, They've put out documents that try to help those who are developing AI ask the right questions in, in thinking about it. I think we need to go down a level of detail, I think. The, there's a fair amount of agreement within, uh, within Western states about kind of what the the basics we should all follow in AI, accountability, transparency, reliability, those kinds of things. But it gets, once you, once you get below that, it gets harder. And so I think where the work really needs to be done right now is at that slightly uh, more granular level of analysis and thinking about what we do and don't want our government to deploy in our name. And so, you know, I think part of this is just uh, having public start to think about this stuff and be able to talk about, uh, to journalists or to, um, you know, in public fora to their congressperson, what kinds of things they they think do and don't make sense. Uh, I think the government should try to be as transparent as possible about the kinds of challenges that it's confronting so that we can kind of react and say, yes, this is a tool we of course think the government should use and no, this is one they shouldn't. But I think at the end of the day, while, while countries like China will be putting pressure on where we wanna go with this, I think we ultimately need to stand on our own uh, with regard to what values we wanted to represent. All righty, so next question coming from Harvey Bynes. 
Um, and I think you mentioned this briefly, maybe we could dive into a little bit more detail, but could you address um, if there are any AI connections to FIRMA or CFIUS oversight and compliance generally? So, you know, to what extent is artificial intelligence already being used in those processes? What is the potential use? I'm curious if you could discuss that and maybe just define CFIUS for the group too. Um, sure. So CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Um, and it's basically a group of um, actors from different government agencies, the Treasury Department and state and justice and defense that are uh, trying to evaluate whether a potential acquisition um, from a foreign actor of part of a U.S. company or in some cases U.S. real estate uh, would implicate national security concerns in a way that would cause us to either block the deal or more likely try to impose certain regulations on the deal um, to minimize those national security concerns. Um, and I'm sure there are people on this call who, who practice in this area who will um, know it better than I do. But uh, so I think it's an interesting question. I'll just say, um, I should say, I'm speaking only in my personal capacity, not in reliance on anything that I did in the government. But in this case, I have no information about whether uh, there are considerations being given to using machine learning tools in this space. But I, I guess I can imagine that just like the SEC is starting to try to use machine learning to um, detect potentially uh, concerning transactions that they might want to pursue in an enforcement matter, you could imagine uh, trying to use machine learning to look at the whole bucket of potential acquisitions that are out there about which there is some public information um, to try to detect whether there are some deals that we're worried about that haven't been brought before CFIUS, right? It is effectively a, a voluntary process to bring yourself before CFIUS if the government hasn't, uh, I guess the government can also um, identify an issue of concern sua sponte. But, uh, you know, the, the place where, where AI and machine learning function best is where there's a lot of data. So I guess you'd really want to know how many transactions there are every year that could potentially implicate CFIUS. And if there are a ton, then that might be an area where you might want to think about trying to develop some machine learning tools. If there are 20 or 30, then it's probably just easier to kind of do it, do it manually. Great, okay, so next question from Mike Gowdy. So Professor Deeks, you recommended that national security lawyers get smart on technology, AI, and ML issues. Do you have any recommendations for good places to start? Uh, hi, Mike. Um, there, that's a that's a really good question. So, uh, one place you could start is looking at a couple of the recent reports from the National Security Commission on AI. Um, this is a, a a hearty assignment because the reports are hundreds of pages. But even just looking at the executive summary is a good place to start. This was a, a commission set up by Congress. Um, sort of to mirror the um, Cyber Solarium Commission, really stepping back and taking a holistic look about where the country is on AI and where it needs to go. Um, and it was it was led by people like Bob Work, who really tried to get the Defense Department um, smarter and faster on AI while he was there. Um, that commission actually uh, takes a pretty forward-leaning approach to AI with this, taking, taking the, the approach that we're going to fall behind uh, China on current pace, and we really need to to be pushing harder and and doing more in this space. 
Um, so it's a little bit, I think, leaning a little bit more forward than than I am, but it's a very helpful uh, primer. And there are also, there are people um, at the Center for New American Security who are doing excellent work on this. Paul Shar has written a book called Army of None, uh, where he's really thinking about the, the kind of lethal autonomous weapons system uh, use of tools. So that's a great book. And, uh, and CNAS has done a lot of reports on this. Alrighty. Um, so Kimberly Cobb asks, how concerned should we be as a society about the risk to U.S. national security associated with the rise of AI globally? Um, so not necessarily just being employed by state actors, but also non-state actors. Uh, and she's particularly thinking about the consequences of acquiring generalized intelligence. And maybe, Professor, if you could just distinguish between the algorithms that you're talking about here and what generalized AI is. Sure. So, um, so the algorithms I've been talking about are generally um, thought of as kind of narrow AI, where the algorithms have a pretty specific purpose, a pretty specific question that they're trying to answer. Um, general AI or uh, artificial general intelligence, as it's sometimes called, is um, uh, the idea that we will be able to develop systems that can effectively think like reason-like, make decisions about, detect causation in the same way that humans can. So uh, this is a little bit more of the sort of Terminator future. Um, and there is an active debate among people who are much smarter than I am on the, the tech on this about whether this is never going to happen, might happen in 20 years, might happen faster, we might have a sudden breakthrough about it. Um, my project is basically working off the assumption that we're not going to arrive at general uh, general AI or uh, uh, artificial general AI in uh, the next decade, uh, if ever. I think once if that happens, I think all bets are off, and and uh, it's really hard to predict what the world looks like. But so maybe more specifically, sort of the associated rise of AI generally. Um, I think one one thing I haven't really talked much about, but will be an issue, is the use of AI by non-state actors. Um, even in the narrow AI, you could imagine um, non-state actors being able to get a hold of, uh, you know, advanced uh, sort of autonomous drones, small drones. Uh, that are extremely precise and um, able to deploy those. I'm thinking like the Houthis in Yemen, they've been able to use large drones to fly into Saudi and uh, cause an explosion basically on the door of the palace in, in the Saudi government. Um, enhancing those drones and the sophistication thereof uh, with AI in the hands of non-state actors is pretty uh, pretty scary. As of now, the really, really advanced AI is largely in the hands of governments, I think, um, but we might expect that that won't last that long. So um, I do think as the as it, as it proliferates, including to non, non-responsible states or non-responsible state actors, um, it increases the, the, the global risk. Okay, um, so Melissa, and apologies in advance if, if I mispronounce this, but Melissa Riley Diacon 
asks, what do you think Congress can do to help improve the legal framework surrounding these types of technologies? So beyond just trying to prohibit certain actions or imports and exports, is there space for a statutory structure to ensure ethical use of AI, uh, or does it belong in regulation or other more flexible regulatory spaces? Um, hey, Melissa. I think, um, so that's an excellent question. And I do think there is more room for Congress to weigh in here. Um, I think in general, one of the challenges that Congress is gonna confront is uh, the same general challenge that it confronts in national security already, having to do with the amount of time that staffers can spend getting smart on these particular technologies, um, really being able to extract from the executive agencies what exactly is happening and what's right around the corner. Um, so that's a kind of a challenge coming in. But if there are, um, if you get to a point where Congress can, uh, has the will and ability to act in this space, I, I do think you could imagine like a framework statute here. Uh, we have a lot of framework statutes in the national security space, things like uh, FISA and the covert action statutes, um, where Congress really, sets out like these are the kinds of uh, systems that we're okay with. Here are the the levels of human oversight that we might want to insist on. Uh, these are the contexts in which we don't want you to be able to use this. So for example, uh, the they could legislate to say that the Defense Department should not allow AI into its command and control systems for nuclear weapons. Um, so taking certain things off the table and then, um, you know, kind of building in thoughtful values on the on the side without going too, too detailed. Right. The, if you get really detailed on a lot of things, uh, the statute becomes um, outdated pretty quickly. Um, so I need to I, I'm going to in the book project spend spend a bit of time um, thinking more coherently about what an actual uh, statutory intervention could look like. Mm -hmm. And maybe if I could take uh, students' prerogative just to ask a follow-up question kind of related to that. But so my understanding is during the Cold War, a lot of the critical technologies um, were developed largely by government investments in R&D. Um, but in today's world, I think private sector R&D, especially in artificial intelligence, but a lot of these other kind of core technology areas, pretty drastically outpaces government investment. Um, and also, I think the private sector is a lot more competent and cutting edge on developing a lot of this. So what challenges are generated by the fact that a lot of the stuff is being developed outside of kind of the government space? Um, yeah, so uh, I think they're right. There are both benefits and, and burdens to this fact, right? Our, our tech community is incredibly creative. It can move fast, it can break things, and it can develop really neat stuff. Uh, in a way that it's hard for the government to do, right? Because of hiring restrictions, because of acquisition restrictions, the government just moves slower. That's not to say that there aren't really smart, fabulous computer scientists inside the government, but I think your premise is right that um, that a lot of the, the kind of uh, advanced stuff is coming out of the, the private sector. So um, one thing the government has, tried to do to harness the power of the private sector is through tools like InQtel, which is basically like a CIA venture capital 
uh, firm that can identify things that it wants and uh, and try to invest in companies that might be able to deliver that. So that's a way in which the government's tried to be a little bit more creative in harnessing the power of Silicon Valley. Um, one of the challenges you could see, it depends where you sit, if you think of this as a challenge or a benefit, is that the companies might resist pursuing certain technologies or areas to, to dive into because they object to how it could be used. Um, so we're already starting to see some companies that are uh, refusing to sell facial recognition software to certain police departments without certain commitments about how it'll be used. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had Google decide not to um, try to re-up a contract with DoD called Project Maven because they were worried that their uh, machine learning-ish tools were going to be used uh, to engage in targeted killings that it, I guess, concluded as a company were uh, inconsistent with international law. So that is one of the challenges of, of relying on companies uh, where their their corporate values don't align with the with the government. Um, but it is uh, I, I know that the the government uh, from a, a variety of agencies are interested in making sure that there are good open relationships with these companies, not just for acquiring tools, AI type tools, but also in the cyber setting. Um, the the interactions between those companies now have become incredibly important as I think the Ukraine conflict shows. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, okay, so next question kind of returns to a reoccurring and probably predictably so theme here, um, China. So Richard Engel asks, you know, what legal means are available to punish those states like China um, that might go beyond, you know, some of the limits we as a society might place having those public law values? Are there any means that the United States and kind of like-minded countries might use to to enforce or get other countries to adopt limits that that might make this technology better for the world? Um, yeah, thinking about the tools from one powerful state to punish another state is uh, can be a frustrating exercise. Um, obviously, this has kind of come up in the in the Russia Ukraine situation. One tool that the government has that the U.S. government has used in the cyber setting, where it has suffered cyber attacks from countries that the U.S. thinks transgress appropriate norms, is through criminal indictments. Uh, there have been examples of the Justice Department indicting Chinese officials, Russian officials, Iranian officials uh, for cyber attacks on dams and elections, and so on. It's not entirely satisfactory because the chance that you will actually get a person who you've indicted here in the U.S. to to hold them, uh, to put them on trial is pretty low. Um, but it is a signal for sure that this behavior that someone's been indicted for is something that the U.S. and and often its uh, allies think is a problem. Another tool that um, we and, and friends have used in the cyber setting to say we don't like this is through public attribution, which is basically trying to rely on a name and shame approach. So uh, we have done that with uh, you know countries ranging from the Netherlands to Japan to the UK, where we've come together and said, we are accusing X country of Y activity, and it's inappropriate that they did that. 
Is that really a punishment? Not in the sense that we think about it in the domestic law sense, um, but that is one means that states are trying to use, I think, to shape not just the, the club of what does NATO think, but also what do countries that are really not within China's orbit or not within Russia's, but not within ours either, can we persuade them through the strength of our values that, that we're actually defining the right kinds of um, uses of cyber? I think all of those potential tools are relevant to AI as well. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, sanctions are also another uh, tool in the book. The only other thing that I've really been able to think of is if you were to capture a system, uh, another state's autonomous system, and you knew that it had been used in an autonomous way that you thought was uh, problematic, you could potentially leak the code. Um, so we might start to see some things that are more uh, trying to turn the tech back on the user. So Dennis Kelly asks, and I think you mentioned in your initial remarks, you referenced deep fakes, which are obviously a big concern, but are there any plans to use AI on the flip side of that to help diffuse misinformation uh, and disinformation um, on the internet? Boy, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't really study misinformation, and so I don't think I have a great answer to that. But if we think about where AI can do best, it's when it has a lot of data. Um, and you know we if there's one place that's got a lot of data, it's the internet. So um, so maybe some people on this on the screen could help uh, think about ways in which AI can be used for that. It may already be in train. I don't know. I don't know for sure, unfortunately. Um, okay, so Krista Rappaport asks, are you concerned about the hacking of electronic locks, such as those on the launchers that the US sold to Ukraine? Those locks supposedly block long-range launching of missiles into Russia. And just kind of building off that question, maybe I'll I'll add general observations about the role artificial intelligence has played in the war in Ukraine. Um, and then also maybe, you know, what general observations about the role artificial intelligence is going to play in cybersecurity uh, writ large. So broad question, take it however you'd like. Okay. Um, so your middle question was role for AI in Russia, Ukraine. I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. Um, I do think it highlights one challenge moving forward, which is that we can see weapon systems um, uh, be used in real life, and we may not always know what mode they're in. We don't know if they're in fully autonomous mode or not. Um, this is actually a challenge that happened, I think, with a, a Turkish drone that was used um, maybe in Syria, where reporters uh, speculated that it had been in fully autonomous mode, but it was difficult to confirm. So on the Russia-Ukraine, I don't know. I wish I did know. Um, haven't seen reports that there has been a lot of autonomy in those systems. Um, hacking is, of course, a real concern with AI. It is easy to um, uh, to deceive the system if you don't, I think, create it correctly. Uh, there are real dangers that it could be hacked and misused. Um, and some of these systems are, frankly, even without the the hacking, are kind of brittle, easy to trick. Right, you've heard about uh, a system being able to detect a stop sign, but if you put a sticker on part of the stop sign, it starts to think it's a panda. Right, it really kind of goes sideways. 
And so with all of these tech tools, I think the answer is yes, we're really always concerned about hacking. And so, yes, if we had, as a country, I don't know whether we did this, but if we had uh, tried to put particular locks on weapons that we were um, sending to Ukraine, uh, we would of course be worried that those could be un unlocked and used in ways that, that we didn't intend. Um, and then uh, Keegan, your, your kind of broader question about the interaction between AI and cyber. I mean, I think that this, I think cyber is the area where we are going to see the most autonomy fastest. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that in a recent uh, uh, NATO cyber exercise, the news reports suggested that um, there were some um, autonomous tools or AI AI based tools that were used in that in that scenario. So uh, it makes me think that that's uh, almost here. Um, and so uh, I think that um, I think AI and cyber is a good place also to kind of if we could just circle back and think about the democratic accountability piece of it. Um, Congress, for example, has a, a I think a, a hard time kind of tracking cyber. It has legislated in particular areas to require that the government give it 48 hours notice uh, within a, a, after a cyber attack has occurred. If, we're, if we start talking about autonomous cyber systems and the attacks are, are flying fast and furious, and there's a possibility for unintended escalation between two different autonomous cyber systems, hmm. uh, almost like the reverse of a stock market crash, then you can imagine how the role for Congress in helping uh, moderate and be aware of and make smart choices about the kinds of conflicts that we're getting into overseas is diminished by the, the introduction of AI into these cyber tools. All right, so we're coming up on one o'clock, so maybe time for just one more question, um, and we'll circle back and end on, on potentially the most important aspect of this question, which is the people who are going to make this happen. So Richard Glenn asks, how difficult is it for affected U.S. agencies, the federal government writ large, to find and hire uh, qualified people who are going to develop the AI in the responsible way that you're describing? Yeah, it's hard. I, the government knows it's hard, though. Right, including DOD and, and the intelligence community, it is. It takes a long time to bring people on to intelligence agencies, um, including in particular the CIA. Uh, you have to have a pretty clean background, um, and there are a lot of people who are really good tech people who might have done some things in the past that would be a challenge to get them into the government. Um, so maybe the government needs to think a little bit about uh, changing its, its clearance process. Um, I do think one advantage that the government has is that there is a real mission here. And, uh, you know, if you want to serve your country in a way that is very direct and very tangible, um, then the government, I think, can offer that in a way that, um, that some of the companies in Silicon Valley can't, but it is a persistent challenge. And, my only comfort is that the government is very keenly aware of this and is, is I think, trying to think hard about how to um, make sure that its, uh, its person power remains strong. Okay, so um, thank you all very much for taking the time to, to join me and Keegan and the foundation today. If you have any questions about upcoming programming, um, please feel free to reach out to the alumni relations team at alumni at law.virginia.edu.
So thanks again very much. And I hope everybody has a good day.